Welcome to Blog Talk Radio in high fidelity. Well, welcome to another segment of the PI Window on the World. I, of course, am your host, John Hansen. And before we get to today's segment, uh, the Procurious Big Idea Summit and Rethinking What's Possible, and my guest, Justin Crum, I just want to remind you that we're broadcasting live over the virtual airwaves of the Blog Talk Radio Network through our studios in New York City. What that means is that if you're able to join us right now, of course, I'm, I'm really happy to have you with us. However, if your schedule isn't conducive to tuning in at this particular moment, not to worry, because the entire broadcast is being recorded, which means you can listen to it at your convenience. Uh, that's just a great feature, isn't it, the internet radio, and in particular, blog talk radio. So just remember that. If you're joining us here, glad to have you. Uh, however, again, fully recorded and available. Now, before Justin joins us, I want to just do a couple of things, touch on a couple of topics. Uh, later this month on the 27th of September, I'm going to be doing a webinar uh, via Zykus uh, talking about the impact, the emergence and impact of blockchain technology on the procurement world. Now, you know, it's going to be an interesting discussion simply because uh, it, we, we did a, a segment, a webinar last year in the fall, uh, November, if I'm not mistaken, where we took a poll and we asked procurement professionals, uh, what exactly uh, do you know about blockchain? How will it affect you? How will it impact your job? And what was interesting is, is the vast majority of people had never really heard of blockchain or even considered its impact. Obviously, they couldn't consider what they haven't heard of. But uh, this this particular webinar coming up at the end of September should be interesting because we want to see if it's progressed further. Because you know, Bitcoin, blockchain, all of these things are, are are terminologies that are being bantied around with greater frequency today. So I would uh, again encourage you to tune in. Now, this is being broadcast a, a worldwide webinar, so if you're in North America, it's a little bit early, 7.30. Well, I don't know, 7.30 a.m. may not be early for you. I know I'm just getting into my third cup of coffee at that particular point, um, but it's 7.30 on the 27th. I also want to remind you that I will be in New Orleans at the Horizons 2017 event uh, in the early part of October, which should be interesting in itself, and there'll be some uh, good discussion there on supply chain risk, something that, that, that uh, we'll definitely want to talk to. Now, I'm still waiting for Justin to call in. So uh, let's do this. Uh, I want to I touch on a couple of topics that have been really uh, very, very interesting as of late. And uh, a number of articles and posts that have, have crossed my mind uh, or, or my desk and my mind most recently. Uh, because, again, there's a lot of things that are happening in our marketplace, in our industry that, uh, that is particularly uh, noteworthy. Uh, relative to uh, relative to uh, how our industry is reshaping itself with the, the mergers and acquisitions, the the uh, introductions of new technology platforms and uh, various other uh, things going on. For example, uh, on August 10th in the Procurement Insights blog, I wrote about the Hackett Group report on the impact of digital transformation. And one of the things that was interesting. And I'll quote it from, from, from the document, world-class procurement organizations now operate at 22% lower labor costs than their peers and have 29% fewer staff while demonstrating improved effectiveness and a better performance across a wide array of key metrics. That's a quote directly from the Hackett Group report. What's interesting is, is I don't think that it's anything that is it's particularly new or innovative. It's accurate. There's no doubt about it. But this is something that many, many years ago, we were talking about the fact that you know our, our world is changing. Uh, we have to we have to be able to work and do more with less resources. But I think that's where the new technologies that are coming in. And, and no, I'm not changing my take on technology of suggesting that uh, technology is the driving force. It is a useful tool and adjunct to the procurement profession. But it, it, it certainly 
it certainly is not uh, is not uh, an element that uh, is the same today as it was years ago when uh, we were dealing with the ERP world. Uh, so I, I just want to point that out. It, it, it's an interesting revelation because ultimately something that we were talking about 10 years ago and five years ago is now being recognized in the mainstream as coming into fruition. And, and, and I find that fascinating because we are now starting to embrace the possibilities and the opportunities that we knew exist previously, existed previously, but quite frankly, uh, we're never in the position to take advantage of. And, and now we are in that particular uh, situation. So that was one thing. I, I encourage you to read that uh, Hackett Group report, because like I said, I thought it was a very, very good, uh, uh, very good uh, uh, paper, uh, even though it does reaffirm or reconfirm uh, what we were talking, uh, we'd been talking about all along. Now, I just received the note that Justin's running a little bit behind. So, you know what? Let's uh, let's see what else is is happening on the uh, procurement world front. Uh, other stories that uh, may be of interest. Yeah, you know, just this morning there was a report of the Coupa f Financials, the analyst review, and they're saying that uh, they had experienced some gap losses. And you know, one of the questions that immediately came to my mind is: Is does this really matter? I mean, does do you, as a procurement professional, actually care whether or not uh, a company's stock, not just Coupa, but any publicly traded company, do you care if their stock uh, is underperforming? Uh, or, or not performing, or if their their financials experience a loss, does it affect your decision in choosing them? Or has it ever? That may be something you might want to write into on the Procurement Insights blog or share your comments on Twitter. But ultimately, you look at something like that and you have to say, well, look, uh, is that going to be a reflection of the quality of the application or solution that's being provided? I've often considered the financial markets in Wall Street. And you know, I've never been a big fan of Wall Street. I think they're bad for business. I think when you deal with organizations who are uh, beholden to a, pu a, 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 a publicly traded stock, that that can negatively impact. It can negatively impact uh, the objectives and the agenda of that organization, much to the detriment of the end user client. But an interesting question there, something to ask about. Feel free to write in Procurement Insights uh, and, and visit our blog and, and share your thoughts on that. But does that really matter? I'm not so sure it does. Uh, again, I think it's more of a distraction than anything else. Um, other interesting things that uh, are, are, are quite interest or quite noteworthy is uh, our ongoing poll in terms of does procurement need or deserve independent media coverage. Uh, and when we talk about that, oftentimes, you know, uh, many of the things that uh, we look at, uh, analyst reports or blog posts or media coverage and, and, and uh, whatnot, we look at and we have a, a, a skeptical or a cynical eye. We're wondering, you know, is this going to give us accurate information or does exposure come to those of the highest bidder? Now, I was talking with uh, someone the other day, uh, a young executive of an up-and-coming uh, procurement company. And quite frankly, you know, they were trying to do all the right things, investing in, in, in the gardeners and getting the right analysts involved, et cetera. But they hadn't been gaining any real traction. They've been gaining, they were gaining opportunities, uh, certainly to tell their story. But ultimately, at the end of the day, opportunities don't uh, uh, feed the cash flow, which ultimately uh, provides the bottom line uh, revenue needed to not only sustain the company, but to grow its market presence. So what role does the media have in that? In our uh, poll that was uh, posted in uh, May of uh, 2017, just this past May, we asked, does procurement need or deserve independent media coverage? 61% said yes, 38 or almost 39% said uh, no, it's not something that they need. And I think that's an interesting uh, an interesting uh, result. I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind is, is why wouldn't you want independent coverage? So the 40%, not to criticize, because this is it. You know, we don't go for consensus here or, or agreement. Uh, certainly disagreement and, and uh, healthy debate uh, is, is good for all of us. But what are you thinking? I mean, why wouldn't you want independent and transparent press uh, or coverage or media coverage of the industry? That's a, that's a key question we have to be able to uh, to uh, answer to ourselves. But anyway, this uh, check out the Procurement Insights blog again, because this ongoing poll result uh, is, is certainly worthy of further discussion. But right now, the number is at 61 to 39 in favor. 
Yes. Now, also other other interesting uh, developments uh, that are coming on the uh, near uh, horizon. For example, I talked about uh, the uh, Coupa CEO's uh, fever. It was sort of a tongue in cheek, but uh, the question was: is that there was the acronym that came up uh, in a fevered state that that, that Rob Bernstein uh, said? Uh, look, you know, Coupa stands for comprehensive, open, user-centric, prescriptive, and accelerated. And in my uh, in my August 29th post, I said, well, wait a second. You know what? Coupa was based upon the Coupa Cafe, original thought. Uh, leaders, uh, thinkers, creative people. And I, I raised the question, it's, you know, I, I, I can't see somebody reducing a company vision down into an acronym. And so, you know, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? You know, I mean, when I think of a company and, and take any company, not just Coupa, but IBM or any organization with who you deal with, I mean, what does their brand represent to you? What does it say to you? And I think that's uh, that's uh, that raises an interesting question because the Coupa organization, which you know I remember covering them since 2007, has grown and evolved in, into first of all a unicorn, then a publicly traded company, and certainly they have a large footprint. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, you know what what brand does the organization with whom you're looking at uh, dealing or already dealing with what what image do you take away from them? Anyway, that's it. That's it for my ramblings. I want to now turn to uh, Justin Crump, who is joining us. Justin, welcome to the show. How are you today? Hello, Justin? I'm good. How are you? Just fine, thank you. Glad you're able to uh, to join us. Um, one of the things that's uh, interesting, I just want to give a little bit of background information. You know what, better than me doing it, why don't you give a little bit of background information on yourself? Because when I read your bio, I was fascinated by it. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your organization, Justin. <laughs> That's very kind. Yes. So, um, we've been going for about seven years. I've been working in the um, security and intelligence field, I guess, for about 20 years now. Um, I fell into it by accident. I was originally an investment banker. And uh, I was called up uh, in late 2001 uh, for military service. Um, I'd always kind of role in the decision maker's role. Um, and then later on, I was advising businesses, um, you know, on, on how to operate uh, after I left that in in insecure environments. I'm sorry, you know, Justin, we're kind of losing you. You're kind of fading out Justin. there. Are you on a self? Are you on a cell phone or are you calling in on a landline? Because we're, we're breaking up every couple of sentences. I love technology, hey? Technical difficulties on radio. Um, uh, Justin, if you can hear me, um, if you could call in using a landline, I think we may be running into, uh, into some difficulties uh, in terms of uh, technology. Uh, he may be using a cell phone. I mean, that's just great. That's what I love about radio. You never know. Uh, what you're going to encounter. So uh, hopefully Justin will be calling in again. Let me give you a little bit of background. He's the CEO of Civiline Limited, uh, which is an international intelligence and risk analysis consultancy based in the UK. And their personal focus, his personal focus through his organization is on international jihadist terrorism, strategic affairs, military evolution, and intelligence operations worldwide. Now, I got to tell you this, and one of the first things I want to ask Justin, if we can get him back on the line, is uh, in the context of Procurious Big Ideas Summit and rethinking what's possible, in particular procurement, um, how does, I mean, this, I'm sure it's going to come across your mind, is how do you correlate expertise in jihadist terrorism with procurement? Now, I know hands may be going up universally right now and saying, wait a second, uh, you know, uh, quite frankly, it's like, you know, conflict uh, minerals. It's like uh, regions of the world where there has been, uh, let's say, a, a weather, uh, weather incident. Certainly Hurricane Irma is, is in that line. But uh, let me see. I've got Jack coming back on the line here, and let me see if I can bring him back. Jack, are you are are you back? Clear? Hey, yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, that's one okay. Of the I should add about this uh, this job is that one has to travel quite a lot, so um, you end up with quite a lot of dodgy phone connections. So I apologize about that. 
That's fine. You know what? After doing about eight, nine hundred shows over the years, we've encountered everything from lightning strikes to spilled coffee on keyboards to you name it. So we're 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 used to dealing with that. Now, one of the things, Jack, and and, and to get into it because I want to maximize my time with you. Um, one thing I'm saying is, and it, your organization is called Sibylline. Did I pronounce that correctly? You did. I think you win a prize for doing so. Um, not many people get it right first time. Okay. Well, one of the things I, I related to is that, you know, you're an international intelligence and risk an analysis consultancy based out of the UK. And, and your personal focus is on international jihadist terrorism, strategic affairs, military evolution, intelligence uh, operations. And the obvious first question that came out is, especially in relation to the Curious Big Ideas Summit, is how do you correlate that expertise, let's say in jihadist terrorism, with procurement? I'm, I mean, I'm sure there's some obvious answers there, but maybe you could, uh, could uh, you know, uh, expand on that a little bit, especially in the context of what you'll be talking about at the conference. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And as I was saying before, the um, intelligence is really just a fancy word for um, information to support decisions. And of course, what makes intelligence is in the eye of the user. So um, a weather forecast for you might be particularly important uh, intelligence because you, know, you might be planning on undertaking an outdoors activity this weekend, which is critical. Uh, for someone else, they're not planning on leaving the house. The weather forecast is irrelevant. So you know, to a very great extent, you know, it is your observation um, of information that makes it intelligence. And that's related to the fact we're trying to make a decision. And if we put that into the uh, procurement context, and one thinks about supply chains worldwide. Um, you know, our view is that the world is a system of systems. These things are interrelated. Um, we live in a world now where the tempo of events is very high. Information is abundant, um, it's everywhere. And we talk about this concept of the VUCA world, so the volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous world, which is, I think, something that should be familiar to, to many listeners um, if they're into any sort of kind of modern business. Um, Considerations and kind of thinking about modern business. So, you know, in this VUCA environment, um, you know, supply chains, we, well, thanks to technology, really, we've developed these amazing just in time supply chains. If you look at one of the UK based coal manufacturers, I think over half the people in their factory are actually from a logistics company. And their job is to deliver a part to the guy on the assembly line just when he needs it. Uh, they're actually not allowed to have parts of the factory more than four hours in advance of when they're required. Yeah, that's an amazing machine that we've built, and it's delivered huge efficiencies. You know, things are simple when you think about supply chain as the ISO container, standardizing on that. You know, we've brought about these immense abilities to unload cargo at terrific rates, you know, very complex computer-controlled systems to do all this. And it's brought us all the benefits in the modern world. The problem with that is, I think, once upon a time, we had to be resilient. And that was kind of built into our designs. We would have redundancy. And if you look at um, older generations of aircraft, they would have huge redundancy in their system, you know, built in by the engineers, just in case. And of course, that then nowadays is probably seen slightly more as excess weight and strictly necessary for safety. You know, what is enough? Um, now, obviously, in aircraft, we still keep a margin. I think maybe in supply chains, um, companies are less inclined to because again, it's seen as a money sink. Uh, you know, money tied up in um, Redundancy in systems, if it's not strictly necessary, do you need to spend it? The board's under fiduciary pressure, you know, and so these things are always um, kind of under threat because if nothing goes wrong, then it's almost a waste of money. So I think there's always this battle with anything about the resilience of the system. So for me, in the modern world, and we look at the variety of threats, and uh, it's interesting you mentioned terrorism because actually, in some ways, I think that's one of the least important um, strategically, um, but obviously the most spectacular. You know, these are things that can disrupt a supply chain and that can have huge consequences and knock-on consequences to a number of businesses. I think that's my kind of key um, aspect, I think, for so curious in particular, um, is about, you know, understand your world um, and then understand, you know, how that can impact your procurement, how that can impact your supply chain. And what could go as far in terms of threats is obviously reputation, you think of, natural disasters, obviously, you know, very close to home at the moment. Um, and again, terrorism, which you mentioned, which if we think of it in practical terms, it is a threat to people, but of course it would be very unlucky to ever be caught in a terrorist incident. Um, we, we live in fear of them because that's exactly what these people try and set out to do. Um, but to some extent, you, know, you are going to be much more affected by natural disasters uh, and so on than you will be by an act of terrorism. And indeed, geopolitics 
and I think the situation on the Korean Peninsula uh, is a big reminder of how the world can change and established you know, just-in-time production lines uh, with shipments coming out of the South China Sea, also an area of contention out of the East China Sea, you know, could be disrupted by major global events. Um, and it's thinking ahead about those. I mean, I'm not going to say that any company can solve the Korean Peninsula crisis, but I think by looking into what is possible and what is probable, one can start to take avoiding action early. So really to sum up the key thing, um, I guess I'd like people to visualize it. The idea of issues in the world is a lava lamp. And so we kind of track the issues coming off the bottom of the lava lamp as they bubble up. We call those emerging threats. And I think one of the big things that procurement can do is understand their network and what matters to the business because they have this global footprint. And then as you see emerging threats, start to say, okay, how could this affect us? And what would we do about it and prepare everyone? I think that's one of the most important things. You know, I had, you want, a couple of words kept flashing into my mind in terms of this thought. Uh, response and resilience, and you use the word resilience there. Um, you know, we talk about risk and, and supply chain risk is, is, is nothing new. And the reports consistently show out uh, that, and, and this is going back to 2007, so we're spanning a period of 10 years, Justin, is that while people acknowledge the inherent risks in supply chain, the majority acknowledge the fact that they have done very little uh, to actually prepare themselves to respond to risk, both anticipated and unanticipated. So, so, so if you look at, at, at what you're saying, is being aware of risk is not, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, is not necessarily being prepared for risk. And in that concept, when you're talking right. to people and you're speaking at the Procurious Big Ideas Summit, how do you think? And I'm going, to, I'm going to ask you this question. How do you think that your, your insights and expertise will resonate with the audience more than others uh, have in the past to actually put them in the position to make that move? In other words, move beyond acknowledging risk to actually being ready for it. And, and, and just to digress a little bit, I wrote a post many years ago on uh, Nokia and uh, Philips. Or Nokia and Ericsson, when a Philips microchip plant in New Mexico was struck by lightning and just literally uh, uh, contaminated millions of phone chips, Philips' uh, biggest customers were Nokia and Ericsson, mm -hmm. both mobile phone manufacturers. Nokia's supply chain management strategy gave it the ability to switch suppliers quickly, while Philips didn't. And as a result, uh, Philips, their Nokia's profits rose by 42% that particular year, yet uh, Philips had an entirely different experience. So, you know, it's obvious that preparation is necessary, but how do you feel you'll be able to move people from that standpoint of acknowledgement to action? I think the great thing that intelligence offers um, is that ability to sort of understand the environment better put things in more context for a decision maker and help people understand why they should do things. And I think something that's been missing um, for a lot of businesses, not only in the procurement function, but across the whole business, has been that role of intelligence. Um, and let's go back into policing. I mean, policing um, led by intelligence is a comparatively new invention. It came out in the early 90s. Uh, the military's used intelligence more formally for probably uh, in that form, 100 and maybe 20 years, and unofficially, obviously, long before that. Now, the reality is every business has got an intelligence function. It just might not know it. And I think you know, any decision maker has a process they go through by which they gather information and make a decision. So, of course, these things have existed long before we put words around it and processes and you know, figured out that we invented it. Um, but, of course, like anything else in business, someone was doing it well originally and showed a good way to do things, and then eventually we built the science around it. Now, I think the science of this has often been missing. And if we look at a lot of the standards around resilience, the standards around security, um, and especially risk management, you know, sort of stage one is identify your risk. You know, stage two to stage thousand is manage your risk. And there's this obsession with sort of risk management as a process, which to be honest, I don't think manages risk at all, it reports on it, versus actually just identifying things that could affect you and bringing them up in a timely and sort of relevant fashion to, to key decision makers. So again, in that context, someone um, in a successful company's example, we go with, with the SIM cards, you know, they'd obviously persuaded someone at some point, we need to have an agile strategy. Now, at some point, a meeting was had, and someone said, we need to invest some money in having multiple suppliers. And they persuaded someone of that. 
And I presume that when they did that, they outlined scenarios under which that would be necessary, and they used evidence to support that judgment. I mean, really, that is a functional use of an intelligence process at the end of the day. Now, it may be that a decision maker, the same argument is made at another company, and decision maker didn't listen. But I guess we come to the heart of what intelligence needs to be able to do, which is persuade um, the person that you're trying to give the information to so that they listen to you. And there are interesting studies, actually, on the military side that, you know, if you're briefing someone on 10 points, maybe two or three will stick with them. So you have to really get your points home, like anything else in business. Um, you know, we know that not every meeting you walk away from with everything you wanted to impart to people being imparted. So, again, it's, a lot of it comes down to that ability to persuade. Some of that's a process. Some of that's the people looking at it. You know, sometimes it's the technology in this day and age that helps you visualize what you're trying to say and communicate with people. But I think, again, having a strict process around this is very persuasive. And it's um, less ambiguous, and it's making sense of complexity. I think when people look at this, and I, I suspect the functions that acknowledge risk existed but aren't doing anything about it, would fall into this, which is almost that we're not doing anything because it's too difficult. You know, we don't know how to actually measure and quantify this. And actually, we can just see so many risks that we want to go and have a strong whiskey and, you know, take ourselves to bed, you know, rather than deal with some of these problems and just hope they don't happen. And I think, especially in the cyber domain, we've seen that as a strategy um, almost, again, because of the complexity. It's very predominant there. And I think it's, again, having a process to tackle a problem. And it, it won't ever be perfect. Of course it won't. But it's something that helps you make better judgments and helps you communicate those judgments and get people to take action in a structured way. It has to be better. And I think people just don't understand it. I think even in the military, it's not understood. Policing, it's only 20, 25 years old. So um, a senior chief security officer now who maybe was in the FBI previously, you know, would have joined the FBI at a time that they didn't have intelligence as a function. You know, so they weren't brought up with this. So even within the government domain, people were not brought up with this mindset. So I think it will take another generation to really get into business. But again, procurement is so well placed to do something with this, because as you've said, there is this acknowledgement of risk. Um, it, you know, it's global. A lot of what procurement does is trying to mitigate that risk, um, or at least trying to put a good value around it. And intelligence is really the art of valuing that risk as well. So I think you know it's a process that applies to everyone in the business, let's face it. But I think you know, procurement experts are very well placed to understand the business and see the dependencies, the critical dependencies on which they rely. So is it a matter of prioritizing that risk with circumstances? Like, you know, we, we were talking, a recent study came out that said that 80% uh, of companies will screen their employees before hiring them, yet only 20% will screen their suppliers sufficiently before using them. And, 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 and I guess, discrepancies or, or, or disconnects such as that makes one to wonder why why that, that occurs, especially when you're dealing with, with again, I, I understand the importance of screening employees to be certain, uh, and but, but is it perceived that one is more uh, understandable of a risk than another, you know, and, and not just with that generalized example, but let's look at an example of what happened a few a couple of years ago with Target where hackers stole millions of credit card records. Uh, I mean, like in those kinds of scenarios, were they, were they, did, or did they have a false sense of security, like the Maginot line, you know, uh, you know, be, be before World War II? I mean, do we get too comfortable? Do we believe we're covered? Or, or, or are these risks, like if you see the information, you say, okay, you know, 80% of, of, of companies screen employees, but only 20% screen suppliers. Is it that they just don't recognize the degree of the risk until after? I, 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 that's really where I'm trying to get a handle on because all the intelligence is there. Does something have to happen first to get people all of a sudden kicking into high gear? Yeah, you know, it's a bit like the insurance argument, isn't it? I mean, you, if you just had an accident, you probably really focus on um, the quality of your insurance provider. Um, now, you have to have it, say, for a car because of legislation. And um, a lot of people would argue that you know, the regulation should drive business and business should do everything it has to outside the regulation, you know, in order to make money. Um, I'm not a fan of that. I think it's not a good approach to business. But again, to take the car example, when you are... You know, if you've had an accident, someone's hit your car and you've had to deal with the claim, you know, you're really grateful that you got good insurance. Let's face it. You know, and then you probably think, you know, I need to have good insurance in the future because it's worth it. 
if you've never had an accident, you haven't had an accident for 10 years, then you'll probably go with the cheapest provider. And I, I hate to say that a lot of it is financial, but I'm sure it is. It is, you know, it's a matter of resources. But um, obviously the best thing to do is to screen your suppliers so you don't end up accidentally you know, uh, financing terrorism or uh, you know, bringing on board a supplier that's not adequate or is about to fail financially. And, you know, I dealt with a case recently where um, a company made a very persuasive pitch uh, for training in security to a very large defense company, and they did their due diligence and uncovered a, um, a connection back to the Iranian government that was not well known at all, although it was a, you could find it if you looked. But actually, that, um, that particular training company was also supplying other national governments around the world, taking them on board five years ago and never rescreened them. And actually, in the meantime, that company got into financial difficulties and had been bailed out by Iran, which had an interest in the training that was being provided. You know, there's a major national security kind of issue uh, for the country's concerns. Obviously, not who they are, but you know, it was um, that was pretty bad. So even governments are bad at this, and the reason was it just took too many resources to keep an eye on this, the changing environment. So I mean, it is, I think, functionally that whole issue of resource and how willing people are to allocate resource and difficulty. Um, and I think, again, in the face of this high-tempo world, you know, often you want the supplier on board because you've got a project and you know, the people driving the project, who, of course, are technically driving revenue for the business, are saying, look, we just need the supplier on. I want to get this, you know, this component of what we need to do in place. And I don't want to be held up by six months of checks and then potentially being told that actually this company is not suitable. Now, to put it in a slightly different environment, um, I mentioned I used to be an investment banker and um, due diligence of individuals in banking and organizations in banking was a constant battle because the last thing someone wanted to do is bring on board a client for the bank and then be told by someone else that actually that client, you know, that would guarantee their bonus and this deal, you know, couldn't go ahead because the person had a terrorism flag or, you know, a link to a suspicious organization. So, you know, revenue generators didn't want to know that sort of news. So they go to huge lengths to try not to have any issues around it. Um, because so, so sorry, sorry to interrupt. Sorry, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but yeah. one of the things that came to my mind there is, is, is part of the problem, Justin, is that they have the wrong motivators in place. You know, one, one of the things you just talked about mm -hmm. with bringing on supplier, you go through all that effort for six months, you, you know, you're, you realize something comes up where it says they're not the best, uh, the best potential suppliers, there's risk, but because you've gone down the road so far that you say, well, I'm, I'm, I, I, you know, I don't want to go through this exercise again, or this individual is a bonus tied into a client, even if that client isn't the best. I mean, yep. you know, look at what happened. I, I don't want to go too far off the beaten track, but look what happened with Wells Fargo mm -hmm. and the fake accounts because of the wrong incentives. Mm -hmm. I mean, is it the fact that the yep. greater problem with managing risk is that there isn't the proper incentives in place. I mean, one of the things you talk about the insurance, car insurance, and I mean, it's an overly simplistic uh, analogy here, but car insurance, uh, it, it's a legal requirement. You have to have it legally. I wonder how many people would have insurance if it was optional. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It, it's it's, it's well, almost like, is there the incentives that are in place to make risk, not only awareness of risk and acknowledgement of risk, but the management of that risk and have the proper have, have the proper processes in place to address that potential risk. Is that where the gap is occurring? I think it is. And, you know, across a whole range of things in the business, again, you know, of course, way beyond just procurement. I think there is. And I think if one looks historically, I think there was a bit of an incentive on organizations. Um, to run themselves in a, a fair and ethical manner because it was what you did. Um, and I think that you had resilience because it was a responsible thing to do to shareholders. And I think, you know, in a, in a happier world in which we want to live, um, you know, that was just the way that people did things. And I think, again, all of that tempo increasing in business, you know, the need to react quickly to things, the constant demand for profit, um, and I think the sheer amount, frankly, of computing power that's being thrown at um, businesses nowadays uh, you know, is both helping and hindering. And I think it's driving uh, some of these behaviors to be worse. I think we saw that in the banking industry that, uh, you know, the change of the 70s and the last decade in the banking industry. And then we have these regulations to force people to do what they once would just have done because it was common sense. Um, and they had a sense of duty and responsibility. And I think you know, we've lost a lot of that. Um, 
and hence uh, having to be legislated for in a lot of businesses. And then, of course, we end up with a whole argument about how much legislation makes this mean, how much should people just do the right thing. Now, I think the rise in kind of ethical behaviour in companies has been notable, and I think that has come from society, so that's been good. Um, but I think the financial argument still trumps the risk argument. Effectively, they're just tolerating the risk. And maybe that's a calculated strategy at boardroom level. And I've certainly spoken to some boards who said, you know, we totally get what you're saying about a certain situation, but frankly, we can't afford to deal with it. And if it happens, we'll go bust anyway. So to be honest, you know, we, we'll go bust trying to deal with it. We go bust if it happens. Let's just see if it happens or not, because there's no strategy to deal with it. That was actually an airline, which is slightly concerning, but their basic view was if they lost an airframe, they'd be out of business anyway. So, um, you know, they were never going to spend money that they didn't have to try and to try and survive because they just had to pull it risk. Now, that was you know, an interesting example, but you can, you know, they've made a rational decision for that. And whether or not that's you know, the right thing to do um, to actually safeguard investors um, or indeed your own people, you know, is obviously a different um, a different matter. But it, it purely came down to resources and the horsepower of people to deal with the potential problems. I think that's where if you can embed a process that works and is very efficient and kind of speaks loudly to management. You know, it really helps with that decision making. Uh, and again, that's the key of what I like to position with intelligence. You know, it's not just answering people's questions as they come up. It's actually that kind of something that supports the business by really getting into the things that matter the most and highlighting those. And, and really helping the business value risk. And I guess what one could argue is that the perception is that it's very expensive to deal with some of this, so let's not bother. And actually, some quite small measures would have helped the business be way ahead of where it needed to be. You know, and maybe some quite small considerations would help. And of course, you can extend that into understanding what's happening to your competitors, if nothing else. And I think, you know, even what we're doing now on this podcast, I mean, we're helping to share this knowledge, and hopefully, you know, businesses will cotton on and hear about things that have happened to others and say, you know what, we should spend five minutes just thinking about what we'd do if that happened to us. Yeah, or maybe we should have some other suppliers that we know we can turn to fairly quickly if we need to. And it's worth a few days of someone's time building those relationships now, not in a crisis, you know, not after a crisis, but actually a little bit of time up front. And I think this is a good time for it because of the world is the way it is. I think people are paying attention to this more than ever. And we had this wonderful period of global complacency, I think, after the Cold War, and even arguably during it, where things were very predictable, very stable, really. And now we're into this environment where actually businesses are having to go to increasingly complex environments in order to achieve profit. There is more and more competition because of all the factors I discussed earlier. And so you've got to be better at valuing risk in the next organization. You can't be complacent about it anymore. And I think that'll change more and more through this century. And the businesses that get risk, you know, and are willing to take it, but make, you know, the sensible, efficient mitigations in order to take it and are responsible about it will thrive. And I think they'll attract better people and I think they'll do well because I mean, inherently, part of that is caring about your people. Um, I see that transformation in a lot of companies. I think, again, the growth of intelligence within companies, you know, is slow but steady. Again, I, I categorize ourselves as a little bit of a grudge spend because, you know, some people don't want to pay to be told something they think they should know already from reading the paper. Now, it's a lot more complex than that. But, you know, again, do you have to spend money on our advice? Not really. You can go without it. But, you know, we think we do help people make good decisions and we help them value risk. The organization performs better, you know, is safer. Um, and there's a lot of good reasons to do that. So, you know, it is changing. I think that's very positive. Um, and again, part of spreading the good word is to say, look, there are simple things you can do. And I outlined some processes uh, when I talk about this. And, you know, I've, I made the mistake a few years ago of writing a book and putting them all in that, and uh, which means I can no longer charge lots on the inside because you can just go and buy it cheaply off Amazon, increasingly cheaply, actually. I think it's on sale at the moment. But um, one can actually just go into that. There's some really simple things you can do to just have an intelligence process that helps you take information, do something structured with it. I think without that, information is just flying around. You know, people are sharing bits of data, but they're not actually sharing insight. And you can do it with something as simple as reading the paper. If you read the paper with a purpose, not just to absorb information, but because you're tracking certain things. And when you see something that's relevant, you forward it to someone who you know will do something with that information. You're kind of building a process around something you're already doing. And that's completely free. It's just doing what you do better and then using that to kind of you know, make decisions that are more appetite and kind of quantify risk better. So it's 
Pretty, See, you know, clean, you know what I'm thinking. Uh, you know what I'm thinking, Justin. As you're talking, I'm thinking that risk tolerance levels. And one of the first questions that came to my mind. And let's go back to the Target credit card uh, records being stolen. Is it, it in in many cases when these risks uh, become reality in terms of of, of, of uh, something catastrophic, hap- uh, catastrophic happening, like. Uh, did Target, for example, really get surprised that that happened, or did they know that this would happen, but they looked at it and said, our risk tolerance level is much higher, and then even after the consequences of, 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 of what occurred, um, they did have a hit, they did have a loss that occurred from that, uh, but do you think they walked away from it wiser saying, okay, we're going to go through certain security measures to beef it up, obviously, but the reality is is on our bottom line, the net net result, and even though our brand took a hit, uh, if we had to do it all over again, uh, we would still have taken the same course of action. I mean, do you see what I'm saying, Justin? Is it the fact that a lot of the things that happen isn't that it's come out of left field and you didn't know it was going to happen, but you were aware of it. You're just willing to accept it. You gambled and you lost. That's the first part of my question. And then on the second part of that question, this will lead into our final uh, final uh, input from yourself. When these risks do happen, is there an, uh, a potential of the pendulum theory for 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 one to overreact to managing that risk? Do we actually learn from that risk and, and, and do we behave in, 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 and respond in an appropriate measure or do we go overboard with it? So part one of the question is, and I'll use Target as an example, but you can use any in your, your, your realm or scope of experience, is that in most of the instances are what happens uh, and, and the, the events that happen, uh, are they a surprise to organizations? Uh, or really, did they know that they pre-existed and, and they didn't come into left field? They just didn't feel that it warranted uh, taking action at that point. And then again, on the second side of the thing is, is after that happens, uh, does it does it help them to address it effectively going forward? Yeah, good question. Um, to use the target example, I think it is a good one. You know, I think within the cyber realm in particular, People kind of understood there were threats, but they didn't know how to visualize it at all. They didn't understand the magnitude of the risk. And I think that was demonstrated very well by cyber insurance. And that's what that is, I think, which kind of came out of the idea that how bad could it be to have a few laptops deleted? You know, and the scale of loss that was put on cyber incidents um, and the prices based around that was pretty trivial for the scale of damage it can actually now cause a major corporation. Um, so I think there was a total lack of understanding about the cyber domain a few years ago. That's changing now. And jumping ahead, sorry, to the end of your question, I think that's probably going too far the other way right now. But the cyber environment is just a parallel to me. Uh, There's my own background, actually, but it is a parallel to me of the, the physical domain. It's just another layer. It's, uh, as someone once put it to me, it's the same battle, it's a different map. But the thing with cyber is it's happening more quickly. And, you know, it is harder to visualize. And I think, you know, that is happening in the physical world as well. So I think that complexity is most obvious in the technological end, but it exists now in the world environment. Um, So many companies, I think, just don't understand it. They don't understand the scale of how they could be impacted with things they didn't think would impact them or that they just didn't think could be that bad. And it's only when it actually manifests, they look at the scale of loss, you know, that they actually really understand it. So I think it's inevitably an experience that, you, know, you take more seriously once it's happened to you. And that, again, that's I think the critical interdependencies between companies are, are very key here. Um, so to take an example, uh, we had um, a fire at um, a site just outside London called Bentfield, um, and it was quite a large decade fire. Um, in fact, a number of neighboring sites, you know, very, very close um, closed main road, and that caused some disruption because the main arteries into London were closed from the north. But the key thing it actually did was there was a small company nearby that processed something like 70% of the UK's payroll. And that was forced to close down. And so a number of companies that thought, well, that's a you know, dreadful fire just outside London. It doesn't really affect our business um, unless you happen to live you know, in that area. Um, suddenly found there was a risk that none of their people were going to get paid. And they had no idea. Of course, they had that dependency until it happened. And again, I think better mapping of um, supply chain and especially in terms of scenarios impacting businesses uh, and their dependencies that way is really, really, really key. 
So one of the best things I have seen companies do to react when these things have happened is to start engaging a bit together. So instead of rehearsing a crisis just affecting you, actually start involving customers, start involving your peers. And the US government led the way in this on cyber actually. They had some very large cyber exercises. Well, basically, they would put out a scenario and they got lots and lots and lots of companies to join in. Instead of each bank testing itself in isolation and saying, yeah, we can survive something happening to us. Well, of course, the consequence is often of that bank's survival that they would pull something from somewhere else, somewhere else. And so there is this cascading effect when something happens to the whole system. And I think you know, exercising a learning balance is one of the most positive things I've seen come out of experience um, from recent events. But still not enough people do that because you know what? It's a big hassle. You know, in shutting down the business, I mean, half, I bet most companies barely do a fire drill, um, let alone an orderly evacuation. Um, and that is, you know, I kind of practice these things often to start in case it happens. Um, you know, because it gets in the way of doing business. And that is the everyday imperative of the business. And people, you know, are driven to make money, hit targets, and come back to work. So in terms of the, the reaction, the overreaction, you know, I think it's like any form of crisis that after it hits, people run around and panic about it and get very focused on it. And then, of course, over time, it drops away again. Uh, but on the cyber side, I've seen this huge reaction now of people hiring, uh, one bank is hiring cyber, uh, sorry, 50 cyber intelligence analysts, which is great. And I also my 50, and it's because it's a round number. They haven't worked out what they're going to do. They just feel that they need 50. Um, and they haven't actually worked out what the purpose is, but they want to be able to say, we've hired 50 cyber analysts to look at this problem. And, you know, and they haven't actually thought about it. So it's definitely driven by headlines in that, in that regard. And I suspect within a couple of years, they'll be down to about 12 who actually do the appropriate amount of work and look at the right things. So you do see that. And sometimes it's inevitable that people need to make a PR statement by being shown to take something seriously. And I think that is a fact of life. Um, but of course, I think the worst thing that comes out of that is everyone focuses on the last threat. Um, you know, they focus on the thing that's happened most recently or the biggest thing in the room. And what they don't spot is a small emerging threat that's actually going to hurt them hard. And uh, that is the best function for me of an intelligence process. And certainly a structured one is when you're able to look at risk from a kind of objective standpoint and say, listen, what about, what about this small thing over here? What about child labor in Cambodia? Does that affect us? You know, and having a structured system whereby you ask yourselves those questions and People might say no, but we're, we asked one company that exact question, and they said, well, we don't operate there. You know, um, can't see why it would affect us, but it's on our list of things that you know, we said they should to. They actually then went and looked at their own business and came back and said, actually, it turned out that all of their company uniforms were being made in the sweatshop, um, and they were potentially reputationally exposed through that, and they were getting all their stuff made in, you know, in, in these places. And they hadn't ever thought of that. Now, it probably would never have blown up into a reputational issue for them. But I think every time that someone had an issue, they didn't see it coming. That's because they didn't see it coming. So um, I think, you know, having this sort of way, so rather than just saying, God, cyber, we're all, you know, cyber is this big risk. You know, actually having a system where you check yourself off against these other risks and say, listen, you know, I know nothing's likely to happen to our client in South Korea, but if it did, you know, would we, what can we do about it? And what should we do about it? Is there something we should be doing now to make sure that we could cope? Because it might be, you know, it's low probability, but it could be quite high impact. And it's those things that then you can kind of focus a bit of intellectual effort on um, and a bit of time and preparation. And I think, again, that would be the appropriate reaction. Often, though, again, it is that other swing of the pendulum, exactly as you said, and people focus on the you know, headline response to an embarrassing issue um, and don't necessarily understand it. And actually, again, then take their eye off the ball for the next thing that's going to come and potentially bite them or is already biting them, but they haven't seen it. So at the end of the day, and this is perhaps the most important part of your 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 uh, attendance and speaking at the Procurious Big Ideas Summit, is that it's almost like for 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 people like yourself, organizations like yourself, and those involved with 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 looking at the potential risks on the horizons and uh, and uh, changes and, and forces or disruptive forces as you call them, is it's a matter of persistence on those who see the risk and continue to charge up the hill, waving the flag saying, look over here, pay attention. And a, a combination of almost of a meeting in the middle of those who should be doing something uh, with the risk, moving beyond acknowledging it to taking meaningful action. Uh, th that bridge is, is, is not just having more knowledge and more data, which is key, but also creating the means that make it convenient, I don't know if that's the right word, Justin, but convenient and certainly uh, more, uh, much easier 
to be able to respond to risk and, and, and take proactive measures. I mean, that's really where the point we've got to get to, isn't it? And that's why I guess your attendance at the Big Ideas Summit is, 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 is going to be quite interesting because that's just another way of, of, again, taking it to the next level. I mean, is that a fair assessment? Yeah, that's very fair. And I think, you know, we talk about intelligence as being you know, timely, accurate, relevant, and ultimately actionable. And I think it's that thing that's key. And I think if you can just do a few things a bit better, you know, you've improved your chances. And there's a sweet spot, as with everything again, in investment you can make. But I think that sweet spot, you know, for your business will be different to someone else's and it will be you know, the money you have available, the time you have available to look at this. But you will get a return for what you're able to invest in it. And, you know, obviously the highest quality output would require the most investment. There is a sweet spot there somewhere. You're never going to understand the whole world. You're probably never going to understand everything about your business. And businesses grapple with that all the time. But if you can understand enough about both in a cost-efficient fashion, you know, and again, by having an efficient process, by having something where when things are spotted, it's do what with them. And there is that chain of accountability and action. Then I think great things can... All right. Well, Justin Crump, thank you for joining us today. I, I think that, uh, I think, like I said, you, we've, this discussion has given another perspective on the element, and I'll use that term that, that, that you use, disruptive forces and risk. And uh, certainly uh, we're making the right moves uh, towards, uh, again, that proactive state that we need. But uh, uh, again, uh, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to hearing and following up on how things go at the uh, Procurious Big Idea Summit. And just want to thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having us on. Thank you. And of course, you, listening audience, thank you for not only uh, investing what, uh, what is your most important asset, which is your time, but your patience, uh, again, in, in a little bit of technical difficulties and getting to hear me ramble on for, uh, for about the first 10 minutes uh, uh, of the segment. Uh, again, I always enjoy sharing the virtual airways with you. But I think the, the, the key takeaway from today's session is, is awareness of risk does not mean taking action on it. And the real question is, is what is it going to take? to get you, you, your organization, to, to take proactive measures to, uh, to address risk in, in, in a way that, uh, if it doesn't eliminate it, at least uh, significantly reduces it. I want to remind everyone again that uh, this entire broadcast has been recorded, so be sure to share the link. Let's talk about the link. And until I come at you over these virtual airwaves again, as always, I remain your host, John Hansen. Have a great day. Bye for now.